Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to two passages, Galatians chapter 3 and then have Hebrews 11 open this morning. Galatians 3 will begin in, and then we'll go right to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're visiting today, my name is Mark, and I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church. Uh, We're glad you're with us. We're in this series called Facing Faith. And what we've been doing is taking Hebrews chapter 11, which is a famous passage in the New Testament about what faith looks like. It's defined, it's described, and so we've taken the stories that have been given us in this chapter, and we're pulling them out and, and... just elaborating on what the Bible says about the people that we've learned. So I want to catch you up. We're getting to the point where catching up is going to take as long as the sermon, so I'll be brief. In week one, what we learned is that faith is premised on two, two simple things. Uh, that God is good. He's for us. He's not an enemy. He's not out to punish us. He wants what's best for us. When he tells us not to do something, that's what's best for us. When he tells us what to do, it's what's best for us. And so we believe God is good. And the second principle we base our lives and faith on is that God can be trusted. The Bible says he is faithful. I've simplified it by simply saying every promise God's made to you, he will keep. You can trust him in that. So faith is about God being good and God being trusted. And then we looked at some of the uh, characters in the scriptures that show us what this means. We looked at Abel. Abel gave a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. He knew who God was and he knew that God deserved something from him, so he gave a sacrifice of faith, and it was pleasing. We looked at Enoch, who walked with God, and this was a man who drew close to God. He turned away the things of the world so he could know God more intimately, and God was pleased by that. And then last week, we looked at Noah, which was all about obedience, that Noah was obeyed God and trusted that God's words were true, and when the flood came, uh, they were. And so today, I want to look at Abraham. Abraham is is the epitome of faith used throughout the scripture. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, in his great sermon, uh, on the day they killed him for that sermon, in fact, he used Abraham as the example of what faith looks like. And uh, Paul uses him in Romans chapter 4. When he's trying to describe what faith is like, he uses Abraham's life as the perfect example of what it means to be reckoned by God as righteous because we trust him. And, uh, And then the writer of Hebrews, obviously in chapter 11, uses him. But Paul also unites us in why faith should be important to us. And let's read Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who who believe are children of Abraham. The Scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's not telling us something. What I want us to understand when we look at this series, we talked about it a few weeks ago. God's not calling us to be superheroes. He's calling us to trust in the one who's supernatural. Did you catch that? Abraham was a flawed man. Enoch was a flawed man. Noah was a flawed man. None of us are expected to be perfect. So this is not about being better than everybody else. This is about being faithful. And Paul writes in Galatians, he says, if you believe in God like Abraham believed in God, and you demonstrate that by walking in faith, then you become like Abraham. 
You become one of his children. You're living out the promises that God offered to him. Verse 26 of Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. This is a powerful passage for us. I don't know if you picked this up. It may not mean a big deal to you, but I think it should. And that is that we are the new Israel. We are the new promised nation. God said to Abraham when he called him out, I'm going to make a nation of you. But it's not just going to be based on ethnicity. It's not going to be based on location of where you're born. It's not going to be based on male or female, son or daughter. It's going to be based on faith. And the new Israel, the new nation, the new church are those who live their lives believing God is good and God keeps his promise. And if we believe that God is good and God keeps his promises, then the reality for us is obedience becomes a natural response to our confidence. It doesn't become an obligation. It just becomes a natural response to our confidence. So what I'd like to do this morning is take you through four points in the life of Abraham that demonstrate the longevity of his faith. Let's begin with the first one. Abraham responded to a journey with God. He responded to a journey with God. It was a choice he got to make, that God offered him to come. I I use this quite often around here, not because I can't think of anything else to say, but I think it's significant. And that is, you need to be aware, God will not make you obey, and God will not make you trust. He's not interested in coercing you. He offers you the opportunity of a lifetime, and if you believe he is good and keeps his promises, you'll take it. If you don't believe either one of those two things, you'll reject it. So there will be people who know there is a God, but they, don't, they do not give him faith. They do not respond. They do not participate. And they will not be chosen because there's no faith evidenced. And so God does not, he does not force you to obey or follow. One of Abraham's strengths is when given the opportunity to follow God, he responds with choosing to do so. And his journey isn't momentary. His journey's a lifetime. And we'll see that in just a moment. Let's begin in Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Now, if you do a little bit of language study in here, and I've done that for us this morning in verse 8, you're going to understand two key principles of what's said here. It says, when called to go to a place... Uh, he would later receive his inheritance, he obeyed. Now, the, the Greek language, the original language this is written in, the Hebrew writer was saying it this way. While he was being called, he was obeying. When God said, I want you to do this, he began the process of obeying. Now, I'm a little different. I'm going to be honest with you. I would like to know what the whole plan is. Please tell me where we're going, what we're going to do, how long it's going to take, what it's going to cost me, what am I going to get out of it, is it a fair trade, Uh, what do other people think, I do all my analysis. Am I the only person here who's like that? I have one of the favorite sermon titles, I've got to be careful, because when I read the sermon, it's hideous, but the sermon title was great, and it was this, do you want God to make you a map, or do you want God to make you a man? And it's the story of Abraham. If you want God to draw you a map, he's never going to do that. He's not interested in showing you everything he expects of you so you'll obey. He wants to make you a man or a woman after his own heart, which means you'll obey when he asks. And it's a challenge of this. 
that he responded to this lifelong journey. He obeyed. When he was asked to go, he began obeying. And then the last part of it, he did not know where he was going. He didn't fix his attention on that. And I think it's funny in the world in which we live, and we are inundated with information, right? Um, the other day I was, I was here, and the internet, which works about 30 minutes a day out here in the boonies, uh, was down. And, and I'm, I'm not going to exaggerate. Three different times in a 10-minute span, I reached for my phone or I reached for my computer because I heard something, and I wanted to go on Google and find out what they were talking about. Three times the information all around me, and I got furious, honestly. I'd like to tell you I went, well, it'll just be a few more moments. But I was angry that in that instantaneous moment, I couldn't know everything I wanted to know about that topic. And here you got Abraham going home to Sarah. Honey, we're moving. Where are we going? I don't know. When are we leaving? Now. What are we going to do when we get there? Clueless. Are we going to have enough money and food? No idea. Let's get ready. Now, I love my wife, and she's a wonderful person. She'd stay put. <laughs> Not because she's bad. You get me, right? Why am I the only one here if your husband came home with a wild idea? You want to measure it. In fact, we'll go to the New Testament. Count the cost. No one builds a tower unless they count the cost. God, there was no cost counting here. God said to Abraham, let's go. And it says that Abraham, not knowing where they were going and not fixating on that, went. Yikes. You see, he was raised in a town called Ur of Chaldees. And we don't know much about Ur of Chaldees, but we do know what it became. It became Babylon. We know a lot about Babylon. One of the most beautiful, resource-rich places in the entirety of all the world. Babylon was one of the greatest empires ever established as far as empires go. Rome wanted to be Babylon. That's how good this place was. And he lived in it. But it was a, it was a town of idolatry. Even Joshua says that Abraham's father had idols. And isn't it fascinating when you stop and think what's taking place here is that there's a great spiritual lesson buried within the subtext. And here it is. That when God calls you to follow him and join this journey of faith, you are going to have to leave your security behind. Abraham had just received his father's land, a great portion of his father's property and his flocks. He was at 75 years of age. He had just gotten his social security, and God made him socially insecure. He said, I want you to leave everything and follow me. I want you to leave the idolatry. Remember what an idol is. We talked about this two weeks ago. An idol is anything that makes you secure and not need God. Your money, your job, your fame, your education, all of those things are good within themselves. But when they make you confident that they can help you live life without God, they become an idol. And God said, leave your idolatry behind. Faith cannot grow where idols exist. Do we get that? If you have something right now that you're so worried about losing that God could not overcome, your faith will not grow where your idols exist. And so we have Abraham. In fact, Paul would talk about it in 2 Corinthians 5, not about Abraham, but about you and me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I think we might even suggest the new has to come which means we have to leave the old. So he chose this journey. He chose to go not knowing where he was going, and he did not fixate on what he did not know. He knew that God was good, and he knew that God could be trusted. Secondly, Abraham practiced the patience of trust. 
And at this point, I'd like to ask if anybody would like to come up and talk about patience for 10 minutes, since I shouldn't, because I've only read about it. I don't do well with patience. Uh, I can tell you, I had a kindergarten teacher named Mrs. Coons. <clears throat> she was the principal's wife, and she was a wonderful lady, and she took care of all of us. And we did the typical thing where she gave us a seed to put in a cup, a clear plastic cup. And one, one time we grew grass, and then we grew this tomato plant. I'll never forget, she gave us this seed, and we, we stuck it down in the dirt, and we had a big, and we all put our names on the cup and decorated the cup, and we had to leave the top half open so we could see it grow, and I was very, very happy, and, and the first couple of days, I think we went away for like a weekend or something, I just have vague memory of coming back, and all of a sudden, there was something green sticking out of the dirt of all of our cups, and we were high-fiving and having love and life, and this was awesome, and then a couple of days later, everyone else had started to grow, and it started to get a sprout, and different colored leaves coming out, and they were all happy, and mine, mine not so much. Mine was bent over, laying on the dirt, and brown. And I remember Mrs. Coons, my mom kind of tells me, fills in the gaps for me. Mrs. Coons called the house and asked if I was discouraged, and my mom asked why, and she said, well, his plant's de dead and, and everything. And so my mom said, he's probably okay. And so we came to kindergarten, and, and this little kid, my mom and I, we were talking, and Mrs. Coons said, Mark, I don't understand why your plant didn't grow. I'm so sorry. Do you want to start again? And I said, I don't understand why it's not growing either. I keep reaching it every day, pulling the seed out, and wondering what's going on in there. They didn't give me another seed. I learned a valuable lesson that I still think of today. Uh, impatience, your desire to be in control now can stop your future from becoming alive. You see, we have to have the patience of trust. Hebrews 11:9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He lived in a tent. God said some amazing things, but I want to tell you why patience matters. If you read the promises that God made to Abraham, I can only think of two he ever experienced of the hundreds. God said, I'm going to do this for you, this for you, this for you, this for you. But Abraham never actualized them in his lifetime, but he believed they would come, and he based his life on believing they would come, even though he never saw many of them ever in his moment. You see, if you're going to live an entire life of faith, you're going to spend more time waiting than you want to. Because God's not nearly in the hurry we are. See, friendship with God does not come easily because it requires patience. I'd like to do a little survey of Abraham's life. <clears throat> so if you, if you want these notes, if, if I'm going too quick and you're a note taker and you've got to have it all, send me an email. I'll send you this stuff. In Genesis chapter 12, God said, Get out of this land, Ur of Chaldees, and come where I'm taking you. And Abraham said, where are you taking me? And God said, be patient, just come. In Genesis 15, God said, I'm going to take you to a very special place. And Abraham said, when? And God said, just be patient, just wander in tents until I get you there. Genesis 15 again. The Lord said, I'm going to give you a son. And this is awesome, because Abraham's like 1,008 years old, and his wife has gone through menopause. And he's like, how? And God says, hey, just be patient and wait. And then in Genesis 22, God says, take this son I gave you and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham said, why? And God said, be patient and trust me. I want you to remember the questions we just surveyed. Where, when, how, and why? Doesn't that sound like every one of us with God? Every time he asks us to obey, what's our response? When, where, why, and how? And what is God's response? Do you trust me? Be patient 
and do what I ask, and I will deliver on every promise. In Hebrews 11.9, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. And when I went back and read through the chapters of his life, what I realized was this. God allowed Abraham. Remember, he said, come, I'm going to take you to this land. Well, when are we going to get there? When we get there, I'll tell you. And when he got them there, he only stayed for moments in tents, and he bounced around all over the promised land. But he never got to build a home. He never got to establish roots. He never got to stick a sign that says, land of Abraham. He lived in tents. And then when I did my research, I found something fascinating. The only piece of property that Abraham owned in the promised land in his lifetime was the burial plot he bought for Sarah. He buried his wife in the promised land. And I began thinking about this this week, and it just gave me chills. He never got to build a home there, but he got to place his wife there knowing that death does not end the promise. She got to taste the promised land And one day he would too. And that was just a huge moment. Death doesn't end the promise. It doesn't end the dream. It doesn't end the hope. God is faithful. That's what the resurrection tells us every day. If every promise God ever made to you did not happen in your lifetime, don't you doubt for one second it will never happen. This may happen in the new kingdom, which will be so much better. And this is a harsh statement. I want, to be, I want to be gentled. I just don't often know how. I'm going to be real honest with you. Okay, my blunt directness often is offensive, and I don't intend it to be. But if you have to have every promise of God now, then God really isn't your God until you get it. Right? If you place demands on God to prove himself every day, he's not your God. You are. You're the one making demands. You're the one expecting to be pleased and worshipped. So part of the challenge of Abraham's life was waiting on the Lord. And if you look, there are sometimes 15-year gaps between the time that God says, I will give you this, and he actually gives it to anybody. David was anointed as king, and it was probably 30 years before he became king. Waiting on the Lord is how our faith grows. It doesn't have to instantaneous. And if you keep pulling the seed out of the dirt... It's going to die. You have to trust. Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. All of the evidences that would cause a person to walk away from this relationship, Abraham still trusted. And this is our encouragement in Galatians chapter 6. Let us not grow weary in doing good, but at the proper time for... We will reap a harvest if we do not, what, church? We don't give up. James is what reminds me of that kindergarten story. James says, be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Near? It's been 2,000 years. Near. Near. There are people that are sitting home right now, eating a plate of eggs, reading a newspaper, making fun of us because we're believing in something that was supposed to happen quickly and it hasn't happened yet. I'm here to tell you, Peter warned us, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day. His clock ticks at a different rhythm than ours. We're to be patient. So what was the secret of Abraham's patience? Verse 10, for we are looking forward to the city with foundations 
whose architect and builder is God. I don't know who the author of Hebrews is. There's speculation, but there's no actual evidence in the text that leads us one way or the other. You can speculate, and you're as right as anybody else's speculation. However, the inspiration of this passage is powerful to me because when you read verse 10, can't you see that vision in Revelation where the new Jerusalem, the city of God, comes down from heaven and comes to earth? And, it, and who is its architect and builder? God. And the author of Hebrews envisioned that moment where the great city is no longer Jerusalem. The great city is the new Jerusalem. Verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. I want you to pause there. Remember the Israelites going through the wilderness when Moses got them out of Egypt. Remember what they said. If only we could go back to Egypt and eat garlic and leeks and fresh vegetables. And he said, yeah, but you were, they were going to kill you. Yeah, yeah, but we were comfortable being killed. And it says that one of the things faith does is remind us that when we look back to going back, if we don't understand, we're headed to a new land. And we ask the question, when, where, why, and how? Keep progressing toward the city. He will deliver it. Verse 16. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This image of city is amazing to me. Because he asks the question, who is God not ashamed of? Those who believe that God is bringing a better. Catch me on that. That God is bringing a better. What is it you're longing for? What is it that this world is trying to give you to satisfy you? God will bring you a better. He just may not give it to you today or tomorrow or this lifetime. But he will deliver a better. A better city, a better ruler, a better community, a better life, a better hope. See, this summer I had an opportunity to travel with Christ and youth for three weeks in Michigan and got to teach through Daniel, large portions of the, of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And one of the things that I learned when I was preparing this spring for those series of teachings is something I hadn't really noticed before, and that is that it says that Daniel prayed three times a day toward the great city that Israel was founded on, the great city of Jerusalem. And he would pray toward that three times a day. Now, Jason French and I were doing some, some excavation of the text, and we came to this conclusion. If you started him at about the age of 14 when they believed that Daniel was taken captive, until the time that he died in his mid to late 80s, if not early 90s, in that period of time, Daniel prayed three times a day relentlessly, and he would go to a place, and he would face where he was taken from he was taken as a slave out of Israel, and he was brought to Babylon. And three times a day, he would face the city he came from. But that city was devastated. That city was crushed. In fact, when you read Ezra and Nehemiah in your Old Testament, that's the city they went back and began to just try to build walls to, to give the footprint of the city. And in that moment, he prayed over and over. Wouldn't it be devastating to pray to what used to be? But Daniel wasn't praying to what used to be. Daniel believed the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah. He believed those prophecies. He knew that after 70 years, God would begin to rebuild that city. It takes faith to pray toward a devastated city, seeing a glorious city coming in its place. And that's what faith will do. If you wait on the Lord, he'll provide. Ezekiel said, in the name of that city, from that time on will be, the Lord is there. 
It's a promise that we don't always see today, but it comes around. So we know that he responded to this journey. Come with me. Where are we going? Just come. And he went. And we realize that he practiced patience in his trusting of God. Thirdly, Abraham experienced the power of faith. This is toward the end of Abraham's life, and it's one of the most famous passages of his journey. Verse 11, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. See, remember I told you that Abraham was not a flawless man. He, he had his issues. And one of them was, God said that I'm going to give you a son. And he said, it's kind of funny, he laughed out loud and Sarah laughed inside a tent. And God heard them both laugh and he called them on it and they both denied they laughed. And he said, you laughed. You're going to name the child Isaac, which means laughter. When that child comes, you're going to laugh for a different reason. It won't be sarcastically. It'll be with joy. But in that moment, there's a period of time where Abraham has to wait. And he's not perfect at waiting. None of us are. But he says, I'm going to, I'm going to wait for a child. And they don't have a child. So he takes Hagar, and he, a slave woman, and he has a child with her, and named him Ishmael. And God says, I don't know what you just did there. I mean, I know what you did, but I don't like it. That's not what I told you would happen. And here's what we do. When we're waiting on God, sometimes we try to force God's hand. I'm going to give you a son. Make this one the, the winner. And God says, no, no, that's not the... I didn't ask you to do that. And have you noticed that Ishmael and Isaac have been fighting ever since? Read your newspaper. What's going on in the Middle East is two, two boys still fighting over the attention of a father. And when you, you see this moment, God's like, I didn't ask you to do that. That's not what I'm going to bless. I told you I would give you a child. And, well, Sarah can't have a child. Trust me, I'm God. And then he has a child. And it says here in the text that Abraham knew by the way Isaac was delivered that God could bring thousands of children, hundreds of thousands, as many as the stars in the sky. And he says, that's going to be the way I birth a nation. And he had to wait and he had to trust. Sometimes when we try to force God's hand, Sometimes when we try to help God out while we wait, we can devastate a future. So we need to be patient and trust. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us. So if I had to stop at any moment and say, here's the question I want to pose to this church. Here's the question I want to pose to this church. Is your God immeasurably more than you can imagine? Because if he isn't, I'd like to introduce you to the one who is. And if you have a God who's limited, or a God who's disinterested, or a God who's bored, I'd like to show you the God who's none of those things. Do you believe in a God who can take a barren woman and give her a child? Church, talk to me, because there's some women in this church struggling with that right now. Do we believe that our God can do immeasurably more than any doctor can imagine? Do we believe that we have a God who can fix a relationship that seems by anyone's imagination devastated? Do, can, do we have a God who can rebuild a city that's laying in smoldering ruins? And that's the God we're talking about today. If you don't have that God, I'd love to introduce you to him. Because the God that is limited by our imaginations is no God to worship. And Abraham, he trusted God, he was patient with God and he understood the power of God because he had a son and his name was Isaac and they laughed with joy instead of with snarky humor fourthly and lastly Abraham demonstrated the evidence of faith and this is the most famous passage 
concerning Isaac. In Genesis chapter 22, 2 is a very powerful verse. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. They're going to leave it on the screen because I want to point out a couple of things as we walk through this text quickly. Take your son, your only son. How many sons did Abraham have? (laughs) You guys are funny. You can answer in church, people, for the love. I don't know when this became a library, okay? He had two, right? Ishmael and Isaac. And did God forget one of them? No, God's making a point. Abraham forgot Ishmael. He's saying, no, remember that thing you did, lacking faith? That's still your son. But he said, your son, and then the key line to all of this, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Dr. Timothy Keller points this out, and it's brilliant. He says what God's doing there is he's poking and knocking over the idol that Abraham has in his life. What he said to him was, remember an idol is anything that makes you feel secure without God? He says, Isaac's become your idol. Give him to me. The son I gave you, which is supposed to show you why to have faith in me, he's become the thing you live for. He's your security. He's the thing that you can't live without. Hand him to me. And if you give him to me, I'll give him back, but you've got to give him to me. It's a scary moment for him. So he says, I'm going to take you to this Mount Moriah. I'm going to tell you which mountain it is. It's a mountain range. I want you to go up to one particular mountain. I want you to offer him there. And Abraham does. Verse 17 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. What kind of death? The death when he gave him to his father. God said, you killed him. You killed him when you released him to me. And I'll give him back to you. Because it demonstrates your faith. Remember I told you that faith cannot prosper where idols exist. And he had to give Isaac away. So he takes him to a mountain. And as they're climbing the mountain, Isaac who's probably anywhere from 14 to 20 years of age, and he's with his dad, who's now 1,040. And he says, Dad, you, didn't, you brought everything for a sacrifice, but you didn't provide a, an animal. What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham looks at him and says, God will provide the lamb. Interesting comment. Said thousands of years before its actuality. And he puts Isaac, he bundles Isaac up, and Isaac had to go along with this because there's no way. I mean, all he had to do was run four feet. His father couldn't catch him. He lets himself be laid on the altar. Abraham lifts the blade, and God says, you just gave him to me. We're good. And he untied him, and they looked over in a thicket, and this poor, unfortunately timed ram was stuck, and he died. And the sacrifice was made and they came down the hill and Abraham was a renewed man because his faith gave God what God asked for and he got everything back that was ever promised. He lost nothing. And then it says that Abraham reckoned. It's a significant word, reckoned. It means he looked back over his life and he he said, God was faithful here and here and here and here. And so I'm not worried about the future because when I look back at all God's done, sacrificing Isaac is exactly what I should have done. Listen to me now. If your faith is based in the right now and has no respect for the past, it will have no respect for the future. Are you with me? 
When the psalmist cries out, the Lord God is faithful and writes an entire psalm about the moments in history where God arrived to save the day. We must understand our God of the past is the God of the now and he will be the God of the future. And Abraham knew that. Oh, and by the way, on the hills of Mount Moriah, it's not called Mount Moriah in your New Testament. It's called Calvary. On the same hill that Isaac was offered, God took Jesus and asked him. And Jesus didn't have to ask the question, Who's gonna, where's the lamb, Dad? Jesus came knowing, I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb that God will provide. And God did what he could not ask of us. He took his son, who he loved, his only son, and he offered him as a sacrifice so he could love us more and we could love him more. Don't you ever let the now overwhelm the faithfulness of the past and the blessings of the future. Abraham lived a life of faith. And at the end of his life, even though 60 or 70% of the promises he never received, he buried his wife in the promised land because he knew God would deliver them all there. That's the God we worship. And Jesus Christ was the example. So when you wonder, do I have a future? Because my now is overwhelming. My city is burned down. It seems like everything I've lost. Pray toward the city that may be burnt down who through Jesus Christ, God will rebuild and restore. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.